in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, we're looking at using transgenic stem cells to regenerate an entire epidermis. Plus, we'll be looking at the unexpected disappearance of the axolotl. This is The Nature Podcast for November the 9th, 2017. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Well, I'm up first this week, talking about a new paper that details the use of transgenic stem cells to treat a condition called junctional epidermolysis bullosa, or JEB. Now, JEB is a genetic condition that affects the skin, making it incredibly fragile, with the top layer, the epidermis, failing to attach to the base layer, known as the dermis. There are different severities of this condition, and some people experience chronic skin wounds or blistering of their mucosal membranes. There is no cure for JEB, and these recurrent skin wounds can lead to infections and a predisposition to skin cancer. 40% of children born with JEB die before they reach adolescence. I wanted to get a sense of what life is like for somebody with JEB, so I spoke to Anne-Marie, whose daughter Tia has the condition and has had health issues since the day she was born. She had literally no skin on her left leg from her knee downwards and bits on her hands and her face and things like that. I literally saw her for a split, like, five seconds and she got really rushed to a Great Ormond Street Hospital. Now, obviously, because of the effect when she was little, on her left foot, her toes were all fused together. When it was so sore and so raw, it was hard to heal them separately. Life for Tia is different than for most four-year-olds, as the slightest knock can cause her harm. When she does try and walk, it frightens me. It frightens me that she'll fall over and hurt herself. She done it. She done it before at school. She tried to walk and she fell over and ripped all her skin off her arm. Anne Marie told me that Tia's injuries can sometimes take weeks to heal, and in some cases, not at all. She's four years old and her left leg has never, ever, ever been healed. She's always had dressings on her legs and her arms, and occasionally on her back and her belly since the day she's been born. JEB is clearly a very serious condition that severely affects children like Tia and also their families who have to provide constant care. So let's talk about today's paper though, which perhaps offers some hope for the future. This work began in 2015 when a seven-year-old boy with a severe form of JEB was admitted to the Burns unit of a hospital in Germany. The disease of the child that was already very severe to start with, it got worse and worse than at the certain point, instead of having so-called normal blisters, the patient lost basically the skin because of heavy infection he had. He lost about 60% of his uh, epidermis and despite all the attempt of the surgeons, uh, at a certain point he was losing 80% of his skin. And I have to say that uh, the prognosis of the kid was very, very, very poor because of this. This is Michele De Luca, head of the Centre for Regenerative Medicine at the University of Modena in Italy and corresponding author on the new paper. Due to his severe pain, the boy had been placed in a medically induced coma. With treatments failing and options limited, an experimental approach was attempted, which began with the team behind the work obtaining a skin biopsy from an area of his body not affected by any blistering. Now the mutation behind the JEB in this case was in a gene called LAMB3. This is one of three genes that encode a protein called laminin-332, also known as laminin-5. You can think of this protein as an anchor, helping to hold the epidermis to the dermis. Michele and his colleagues used this biopsy to establish a culture of epidermal cells. 
which were modified using a virus that introduced the correct version of the LAMB3 gene. These modified cells were then used to grow essentially an entire new epidermis that the team transplanted back onto the boy in a series of operations that began in late 2015. In three operations, the entire body was covered, basically, and the kid was going out of the coma. He was, uh, he was in good shape. Uh, when he was admitted to the hospital, he was 17 kilograms. That was in June 2015. And then in uh, February 2016, the surgeons at the burn uh, unit, they, they discharged the kid that was back home. And by March 2016, he was back to school. It's been two years since the boy had his first skin graft. I asked Michele how he's doing now. Being so inflamed for seven years, you see some difference with normal skin, but they are small things, you know. In terms of the function of the epidermis, that's fully functional. And as a matter of fact, the kid now is behaving is behaving uh, like a normal boy. I mean, he's uh, going to school, he's, uh, he's making sports, he's playing football, because the skin is functional. Now this work is of course rather exciting and has obviously made a huge difference to this young boy, but this is still only a one patient study. Work still needs to be done, for instance, to ensure the safety of using viruses to deliver genes, although McKaylee says the evidence from this and from previous work is encouraging. Having young children have to undergo extensive surgery is also far from ideal. In this case, however, McKaylee says that the approach was justified, although he sees the technique being used differently in future and rather than doing a few very large transplants, he suggests that multiple small epidermal replacements to a child shortly after diagnosis would be a better way of going about it. Michele and his colleagues are making steps to treating junctional epidermolysis bullosa, although it will take time before any treatment is routinely available. I asked Anne-Marie about the future and what she hopes for Tia. To be honest, I hope they find something that's going to help her. That's, that's all I want is something to help her. Help her forget the pain she's in and help her to... Do, do normal day-to-day -day things that other children do. That's what I really want for her. But if obviously that can't happen, I hope she grows up to be a happy little girl. That was Anne-Marie Foster-Price, a member of the Epidermolysis Bellosa charity, Deborah, which had a role in funding this research. You also heard from Michele De Luca from the University of Modena. You can read the full paper and a News & Views article at nature.com forward slash nature. The news chat is still to come where we'll be learning about a new discovery from ancient Egypt. First, though, it's time for a quick one-two of science as Emily Bannon brings us the research highlights. The original Pooh artists of the Caribbean left their mark in the caves of Mona Island near Puerto Rico. Chemical analysis of artwork found in dozens of caves reveals that paints were made by mixing bird and bat droppings with plant products. Some of the motifs, depicting things like faces and animals, were carefully crafted by scooping the soft sediments from the cave walls using fingers and tools. Radiocarbon dating suggests that the images are almost a thousand years old and that the locals were decorating before Europeans arrived. The guano graffiti extends deep into the bowels of some caves, meaning that the ancient artists delved into the dark to work. From Mona Island to the Mona Lisa, art has certainly evolved. This excrement piece of research is in Journal of Archaeological Science. Now for something more palatable, wine. Whether you taste wood smoke, cherries or freshly cut grass, the subtle characteristics in a bottle of wine arise from what connoisseurs call its terroir, the heady mix of conditions such as grape variety, farming techniques, soil and climate that imparts a unique flavour. 
Scientists studied samples of Shiraz grapevines from vineyards across Australia's Barossa region and found that the chemical composition of the vine's DNA also varies between locations. Such epigenetic changes, which can affect gene expression without altering the DNA sequence, could help explain the delicate differences between wines grown in different regions. Uncork the full paper over at Frontiers in Plant Science. Regular listeners might have noticed my love for weird and wonderful creatures. One such creature is the axolotl, a species of salamander from Mexico. Now, there are lots of cool things about axolotls. My favourite is the fact that they're essentially baby amphibians. They have gills and live in water and never metamorphose the way other salamanders do into an adult amphibious form. Another top axolotl fact is that they can completely regenerate lost limbs multiple times. So they've ended up being used loads for research into not just regeneration of tissues, but things like organ transplants and cancer as well. And finally, in case you needed any more convincing that axolotls are cool, they just look really funny. Since I can't show you a photo of one and you might not have access to image search right now, um, I've actually printed out some photos. And Benjamin, I was hoping you could help us out by describing for us what an axolotl actually looks like. Okay, then team, here we go. Um, They look kind of like an amphibian or maybe even kind of a lizard, I guess. They've got four limbs. They've got quite an elongated body and a bit of a tail there. Um, Like me, they're very pale skinned. They also have these kind of three little appendages coming out of their head on each side in kind of like a Medusa head kind of thing going on there. And, And most importantly, they look super cute. They all kind of look a bit smiley. They do look cute, don't they? That was a good description, actually. The, the Medusa heads are gills, if we're going to be uh, slightly more biologically accurate. But yeah, that, so that's pretty much what I thought certainly an axolotl looked like. But I've actually found out this week that quite a lot of my axolotl facts are wrong. So first off, in the wild, they're not actually white like these ones in the pictures. They're a dark brownish colour, which presumably blends in with their environment a bit better. And secondly, I found out that not everyone pronounces axolotl the same. Well, in Spanish, it's axolotl, actually. This is Luis Zambrano, an axolotl expert based in Mexico City. And Mexico City is really the place to be for an axolotl expert, since the canals and lakes in and around the city are the creature's natural habitat. It doesn't seem like the most obvious place for an unusual salamander to be found, and neither is it the kind of place Luis Zambrano expected his career as a biologist to take him. Uh, I mean, normally biologists here in Mexico, because we have a large areas of high biodiversity, uh, as a biologist, you normally want to go to a coastal area or a very preserved area. We have a lot of very nice tropical rainforest areas or, or shore areas. And, and nobody cares about urban areas. But the urban waterways of Mexico City are now something Luis cares about a lot. Not just because they're the only place you can find wild axolotls, but also because of another important fact about axolotls that I didn't know. Despite being found in pet shops all over the world, they are critically endangered in the wild. We started to study the axolotls, the population density of the axolotls, and made a comparison between this population analysis that we made in 2002 and other ones that a previous researcher did in 1998. And we found that the axolotl was, the density was reduced in, in a sixfold. So we made a population viability analysis to see what is happening with these animals and we found that if we didn't do anything it will be extinct by 2025 or something like that in the wild. It's not entirely surprising that Mexico City doesn't create the best home for a rare salamander. 
The axolotls have to face polluted water, noise, a lack of food, and getting eaten by introduced fish like carp and tilapia. Researchers like Luis need to find ways to combat all these varied threats. It's not as easy as because we are in the middle of the city. It's not like you are in the middle of a preserved area far away from any civilization. Here we have to work with 20 million people at the same time. So after many discussions with other biologists and ecologists, we found that the best way to restore the axolotls is to return to the traditional agriculture, uh, to do it properly without pesticides and herbicides, to work with the uh, traditional agriculture called chinampas. It seems that the axolotls in the lakes here have always lived side by side with humans, going back to pre-Columbian times, when ancient civilizations such as the Aztecs or Mexica people founded cities here. The Aztec method of agriculture may even have benefited the native salamanders. The chinampas are islands that the people built from the mud of the lake. And so all the time they are completely fertilized and they are uh, with water all the time. So it's easy to have two, three or four different crops around the year. That's the reason the Aztecs established here, because they had food all the time. So these chinampas are these square islands that they generate a lot of uh, shore areas and the shore areas are the perfect place for the axolotls to survive because they need areas to hide, need areas to feed. Researchers like Luis have started to work with local farmers to create axolotl refuges in the city's canals and to encourage them to make money from axolotl-friendly produce. People said, no, you have to buy a lot of area and then you generate a huge sanctuary of axolotls. And I said, that doesn't work because the, te- in the moment that we live, then it will be destroyed. So we have to work with the people. And actually, the idea came, started to come from the people that is working there. And they said, OK, when we don't work with pesticides, we see that the canals are by far better, in better shape. So we started to generate common knowledge between local people and, and the science in order to see how these refuges should be done and how they should sell this product in order to have better income, in order to encourage other people to do the same thing as they are doing. This is clearly going to be a big challenge for Luis and other axolotl conservationists. And it's really important work. Axolotls are on the brink of extinction in the wild. And although there will be plenty left in labs and aquariums, a huge amount of genetic diversity will be lost. Captive axolotls are extremely inbred, being descended from only a small group of wild animals. They suffer from various mutations, including ending up with the wrong number of digits, and are very susceptible to diseases. Supporting the wild populations could be vital for future research. It's not an easy task, but Luis is prepared. This challenge is one of the things that I like a lot. It's part like it's a very highly complex system, and we have to consider which are the important variables here: social, ecological, and economical, in order to to see how we solve this very complex system. That was Luis Zambrano of the National Autonomous University of Mexico. He's been interviewed for a feature that's coming out in next week's issue of Nature and which includes even more fun facts about axolotls. Keep your eye on nature.com forward slash news for that. And um, Benjamin, that was an excellent description of an axolotl there. So I just wanted to say thanks a lot. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. Time now for this week's news chat. 
and I'm joined in the studio by Joe Marchant, one of the news editors here at Nature. Hello. So our first story today, we're going to be talking about weakly interacting massive particles, or WIMPs as they're known, uh, which are something that physicists think may be what dark matter is made of. Yeah, that's right. This is one of physicists' favourite theories for what dark matter could be. Dark matter, of course, is the explanation for why um, galaxies don't fly apart. So we think they should, given the amount of matter they've got in them and how fast they're spinning, but they don't. So what's holding them together? Um, And yes, physicists' favourite explanation for what that dark matter might be are these particles called WIMPs. Uh, The trouble is, they're just not seeing them. This new story comes out of Italy then, and what's happened? So there was a, a big result that came out of the Gran Sasso National Laboratory in Italy last week. It's the, the first run of an experiment called Xenon-1T. This is the world's most sensitive detector looking for dark matter, and it is made of a tank of 3.5 tonnes of extremely pure liquid xenon. And the idea that if dark matter interacts with any of the atoms in that tank, um, physicists will see flashes of light. But unfortunately, in the the first results that were announced, um, they didn't see any evidence for dark matter. Um, And we're seeing this as well in other experiments. There were results came out of China last week as well. They saw nothing. Space-based telescopes and experiments at CERN, the European Particle Physics Laboratory, also haven't seen any dark matter. So this is quite bad news, really, for the theory of WIMPs. So if WIMPs are physicists' favoured dark matter theory, does this mean that other theories are getting more of a look-in? Yes, absolutely. So there are several other theories. Um, One possibility is that dark matter consists of exotic axion particles, which are uh, described as being like strange massive photons. There's also the idea that dark matter might not interact with known particles at all and just exists in a completely hidden sector. And of course, this is also encouraging for the minority of physicists who think that actually dark matter doesn't exist and we can explain all the anomalies that we see just by modified versions of gravity. So if there are other theories then floating about, what do we need? to do to prove it? Is it just a case of we need more time or we need to build a bigger detector? Yes, pretty much. That's what physicists are doing. So um, versions of detectors, the next generation of this xenon tank are under development at the moment. So um, it may well be that we need to wait for those to really... uh, close the door or not on WIMPs. But ultimately, most physicists think that some form of dark matter is out there and eventually we will find it. All right, well, let's change tack enormously then. Let's move away from outer space and to the Great Pyramids of Giza. And what I would say is this is a story that did come out last week, but we like this one so much, we we really wanted to cover it. So what's happening then in one of the seven wonders of the world? Well, this is physicists, and actually there is a link with outer space because physicists have used um, particles that are created when cosmic rays hit air in the upper atmosphere to scan the Great Pyramid of Egypt to see through the stone and reveal the existence of a hidden chamber. So this is the first new piece of architecture that's been discovered since the 19th century, so I understand. How do you go about using outer space physics to to find it? So they're looking for muons, which are particles that are produced when cosmic rays strike atoms in the upper atmosphere. And so they placed muon detectors in previously known chambers, so that the king's chamber initially of the pyramid, which is sort of in the centre of the stone, and just looked for muons coming from above. And it's a bit like X-raying the pyramid. So muons are partially absorbed by the stone of the pyramid. So if there's a chamber, then more muons than expected will strike the detector from that direction. Um, And that team saw what they're calling a a void, a large void, at least 30 metres long. Then they got two other teams in using different types of muon detector, putting them in different places in and around the pyramid. All three teams independently saw this same void. So what does a void mean then? 
Well, the researchers are being very careful. They're just using the word void, meaning it's a space. They don't know what the purpose of it would have been. I reported on this story for Nature and I rang around a fair few uh, different Egyptologists to find out what they make of it. And they all thought that this would be an intentionally created space. Um, So we have described it as a chamber but it's very unlikely to be containing any treasure. Uh, Nobody thought that it would be part of the sort of burial arrangements for the king, for example. We already have the king's chamber. There was a sarcophagus found in there. So this is probably much more likely to be to do with the construction of the pyramid. So what might it be doing then in kind of a structural way? Well, I should emphasise first that all of this is speculation. So the chamber hasn't been directly seen. We've just got this uh, information from the muons. But essentially, it looks like a a long space, at least 30 metres long. And it looks very similar to a known space in the pyramid called the Grand Gallery, a sloping corridor with a lovely stepped or corbelled roof that leads up towards the king's chamber. This space looks very much like that, but directly above. Um, One Egyptologist I spoke to thought that it might be a, a relieving chamber to take weight away from that grand gallery. An engineer suggested, well, we might want to look at the end of that space. The grand gallery leads to the king's chamber. Maybe there's another chamber at the end of this one. Um, and a third theory that was suggested to me was that this could be part of a giant counterweight system. So one theory for the grand gallery is there would have been a, a cable running down it with weights at the end that would have, as the weights fell, that would have hauled big blocks up the other side. So perhaps this was part of another counterweight system further up. So much like the uh, the dark matter story there. So we've got a, a number of competing theories. What happens next to try and work out which is the correct one? Can, can we do it at all? Well, I mean, it's tricky because it is completely surrounded by stone. We don't know of any way in. The researchers have suggested that it might be possible to drill a small hole through from the Grand Gallery. And then you could even send, well, a fibre optic cable, but they even suggested flying robots through to go and have a look. So uh, who knows, maybe in a few years time, we'll get a first proper look at the space. I guess it's the case then of watch this space or perhaps even watch this void. Yeah, watch this void. Thanks for the update there, Joe. For all the latest science news, head over to nature.com forward slash news. So that's it for this week. Uh, If you've enjoyed the show, it would be great if you could leave us some stars or a review wherever you get your pods. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you all next time.